This is episode number 14 of the Abuse Talk podcast with me, Jennifer Gilmore. Welcome to the Abuse Talk podcast. My name is Jennifer Gilmore and I turned my mess into a message. I'm an author and advocate for women in abusive relationships and promote that together we are louder. Each fortnight there is a new episode on the Abuse Talk podcast featuring a series of interviews with those that work in the domestic abuse sector, getting an inside feel for what it's really like in their job role and sharing it with all of you. There's also a chance for you to join in the discussion by leaving a voice recording a message so that we can share together in the discussion. Before we get started I want to say a big thank you to patrons Katrina Hay and Susan Rahima. They um, support me on my Patreon account, a special hashtag abuse talk tier, and you can join them as well and have a shout out on the podcast. You can find it at www.patreon.com forward slash Jen L Gilmore. Um, you can always go to my website and find it as well at jennifergilmore.com. Also, a big thank you to our sponsor, Rockpool, um, and they have got a new course, Trauma Informed Educators. And basically, they want to equip delegates to become the lead trauma educator within their organisation. And so they can deliver lasting and sustainable change as organisations move towards trauma informed understanding. So check them out at rockpool.life. Hi everybody, welcome to the next episode of the Hashtag Abuse Talk interviews. I'm delighted today to have Karen Walker with us and she is an author and child abuse survivor. So we're going to take this interview a bit calmer and um, I really want Karen to kind of lead this um, um this interview really but thank you all for joining and don't forget that after this interview you can hop over to twitter and join in on hashtag abuse talk um if anybody doesn't know who i am my name is jennifer gilmore and i'm an author and advocate for women in abusive relationships and run hashtag abuse talk it's just me i'm a one-man band um i just felt it was really important to talk to people like Karen um, and get an inside feel for really what it means to be that person, be an advocate, be in that job role. So Karen, um, please can you just tell us first a bit about you and, and what you do? Um, well, I'm 48, soon to be 49. Um, I'm living on the rural but soon to be moving away. Um, and at home with me now, I have an American Bulldog, I have a big tortoise, um, and my life's in such a different place to what it was five years, ten years, twenty years ago, and coming from a background of childhood abuse, uh, I grew up um, with no love, uh, no nurturing, no warmth, um, and physical, mental, emotional, and sexual abuse, unfortunately. Um, which in my early adulthood led me to carry this weight around my shoulders, um, feeling like there was a blackness inside me that other people could see. I felt damaged and broken. Um, and um, in 2010, I, after many years of not seeing him, I bumped into my father in a nursing home in Liverpool. 
because he, my grandma was in there. And I realised at that time that I didn't know where he lived, who he lived with, whether he had access to other children, because it was him that had done the abuse against me for throughout my childhood until I was 16 right. when he left. Um, so that I, I realised then I had to do the right thing and report what had happened to me. So it took me a few days of going to the police station and walking away and going back and walking away. And they did report him. Fast forward a year, he pleaded not guilty and I had to go through trial with him. Um, and he was found guilty by the jury on 24 out of 24 counts he was charged with and he was sentenced to 16 years. Um, this is the first interview I've had with anyone since he was released. He was actually let out of prison on New Year's Eve. Wow. And I, I just found out after he'd been let out. And um, so this, an this is a little bit different for me because I always used to have this the security of knowing he was in prison and now I don't know where he is, which is separate anyway. So that was changed me a lot. I didn't know at the time, but reporting the abuse was my first step to healing myself. I didn't know that then, but now looking back, I realised that's what was happening. Um, and in, I was asked to if I would write my memoir um, to give a voice to other victims of child abuse and also to give my, well, for me, I said no at first, and then a couple of years later, I agreed to do it. And one of the one of the things that meant a lot to me was that I gave my sister a voice in my memoir, who sadly died um, without ever having her own voice. And I did that. A lot of feedback that comes from um, people who've read my memoir say her name was Jenny and. Um, I feel like I know her and she has a really strong voice now and, I, and I'm proud of you both and, and that's been the most important part of writing my story but the second most important part was that I wished one person would hope, hopefully reach out to me and tell me that reading my story helped them in some way mm. and um, since I published in August 2018 people have hundreds and they may be victims of child abuse or mothers or grandmothers or aunties or fathers even or then any workers have got in touch with me child care workers all telling me oh your story helped me in this way and that way and um, to look for signs of abuse or to recognize signs or can you tell me what to say to my daughter and and it's just been overwhelming and I hope that never stops and every single time I get a message, at first it was completely overwhelming and it was a 24-7 hour of answering messages. And now it's not so much, but every time, probably every day still, one. Um, and every time somebody contacts me, I'm really proud to be able to just give them a little bit of advice, just coming from my experiences. Um, and I try to talk where I can now, and I've attended a couple of conferences and given my story and... And then, yeah, it's, I've just been trying to roll from this. No, I mean, it's, you know, I haven't read your book, um, but it's definitely one that I personally want want to read as well, just for the, the to be able to try and understand. Um, you know, I always think it's important to read, you know, real people's experiences, um, something that hasn't been, 
made into something different um but i just want to also say whilst we're talking that if anybody is watching this and is you know feeling um that they can't watch it you know that's okay and acceptable um and also i'm sure karen will um be able to talk to um people and you know i'll put in the information about any helplines as well because i just thought we should probably mention that side um but karen as i say i want to lead you more because I am sensitive to the fact of what a, an awful um, experience that would have been. And I can't imagine at all being in your shoes and going through what you've been through. Um, but, you know, if it's okay, can you tell us what you remember as a child? Um, from, from birth, um, we, we were unfortunate enough to be born to two abusive parents. Um, there was, as I said, I was saying earlier, there was no uh, time story, there was no trip to the park, there was no hug, no I love you. I, for me personally, because I can only tell my side um, of our siblings, I was only ever told I was ugly, I was stupid, and my mum had this name for me, she used to call me dilatory, and then no one can ever figure out what it was, but it felt like it meant I was just stupid and I had no common sense and I was no good and that's all that we had and on top of that um, there was physical abuse by both of our parents and emotional, emotional abuse mostly from my mother and then from a very early age um, uh, sexual abuse from Norman my father um, until they got divorced when I was 16 and he left the family home so then my sister was targeted for abuse more so by my mum than the rest of us. She just hated her and she was taken away. We were all taken away when we were very small children and put back. But then my sister was taken away and she lived away in care for the rest of her childhood. But occasionally came back to us for weekends or Christmas time or for a birthday where they'd let her come back. Um, which is when she was the target of my mum's rage and anger. Um, and sadly, she passed away before she ever had the chance to find her own voice. Mm. She used to say she wanted to write her own story um, and call it a girl called Jenny because my mum wouldn't use her name and so we couldn't. So I think her name meant a lot to her. Mm. So that's why. In my memoir, the first line is written to my sister and the last word in the book is her name. Yeah. Uh, it meant a lot to me to get her side of the story. So I wanted people to know what she'd gone through and that she was a, a worthy human being with a good heart. Mm. You know? And I didn't flippantly write about our childhood. I had a pile full of social services records the corroborated everything I put in my book because I don't know if you're aware if you write under your real name there's only so much you can put in because mm. you, you can to a certain point what you can't prove can't go in a book unless you use a pseudonym and so um, the social services records helped me to write as much as I could mm. wow um 
I mean, I suppose what I want to, obviously you've, you had that experience of, you know, um, Jenny coming away from the family home and, and coming back. So, I mean, people then clearly suspected that there were warning signs, you know, whether warning flags to other people um, for that to, to happen. Yeah, because um, neighbours were reporting to social services and my father actually took my sister um, in one of the reports to the social services office and said, please take this child before my wife kills her. Um, and and after a certain point, they did take her, but they kept putting her back. Right. What, they never, what they never did was look at the rest of us. Yeah. It was, um, I was left there to be treated like that by her and then treated like that by him. Mm. Yeah, so were, were there any warning signs to the services about the sexual abuse side then or was it purely, you know, your mum's side of things? Well, no so, one ever knew. Um, right. It was, as, as, as is common with most child, child sexual abuse victims, you don't say anything. Mm. And I developed this um, ability from a very small age to go through real horrors at home and walk out of the front door and almost throw it behind me and walk forward. So no one ever knew. I was just a quiet little girl in school. And a couple of people, since I wrote my book, have said to me, I knew there was something with you, but I couldn't put my finger on it or... You were just quiet and kind, and so I never picked up on it. So depending on who you are, I suppose, but that that um, putting things behind you and walking forward served me as a child, as an yeah. adult. And I'm really trying to work against because it doesn't always serve you well as an adult to behave like that, because then you're open to be used by people and mm. treated badly and disrespected, and you don't have the voice to say this isn't right. So, I mean, obviously, you say about being quiet and um, unkind at school. Do you think there that was enough of a flag for maybe the school to understand that there was something maybe a little different? Or because I mean, for me, I always find it difficult to try and inform people of what those kind of signs look like you know were there any signs that somebody could have been able to help you in that moment to you know any support services or school or doctors or anyone involved would they have been able to have known or did you keep that completely locked um inside of you I kept it I kept it as you say locked inside of me I never gave any hints or signals I don't think but I do know now and um, we've moved on enough that the quiet little child is the one that they watch sometimes it's not always abused children sometimes act out um, mm. and you know looking for uh, inappropriate language and inappropriate behavior that you shouldn't know as a six-year-old is a red flag um, and acting out can be a red flag because the child is crying out but doesn't have the language to say what's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, the, the really, really quiet child is one to watch because they're internalising rather than externalising what they're going through, which is what I think damaged me so much emotionally. 
Yeah, I mean, this interview is a first for me because I, I can't even, you know, relate to to it in in the same way. Um, so obviously, you had this relationship with your sister, and you've, um, you know, written about her in your in your book and given her that voice. Um, how did you feel when she was taken away then and also brought back from your family home? Well, I was too young to know any different. When she was taken permanently, she was three, roughly. Right. So I, was, I was only two years old. Right. All I knew, all I knew in my childhood was this bad child because that's what my mum told us, that she was bad and that's why she wasn't there. And she was told that we didn't want her and that's why she wasn't there. Um, so all we knew was was this bad older sister would come back sometimes to get a birthday present or a Christmas present. Because when you were a child, you only know what you're told. Yeah. The world is so limited and small. We couldn't challenge that. In our minds, we thought she hates us. She doesn't want to be here. And she thought we hate her. Right awful so it was just until I was a fully grown adult even over the age of 30 I'd say when I started to put things together and work it out um it was just my reality it, it never occurred to me that something was really wrong mm. did you manage to have a relationship um with her then in in your adulthood um and were you able to sort of create that a bond in the last two years before she passed away um I'd got to an age where, because if basically, basically when we were younger, if, if my mother was speaking to her, we could. If she wasn't, we couldn't. So it was all. It was a very fractured relationship we had with her. And um, but two years before she passed away, I just kept bumping into her, and we had such long chats. And um, I now look back and think, oh, I'm so grateful and thank goodness that we got to have them times. That was probably the closest we'd ever got to be with each other and we told each other a few things and I understood a little bit more and she understood a little bit more um, and I'm just really grateful to have had that. I found out in them two years that she had a picture of me on her fridge and I never knew and that she was really proud of me and I was like wow I thought you hated me uh, and gosh I'm, I'm grateful to have had that. Yeah. Yeah, um, I was going to say, well, when you when you sort of had that, that time, were you able to support each other in that sense of, um, you know, like that recovery sort of, did it, did it help, you know, take those steps sort of forward um, f for you and your sort of journey? Um, no, I, I wasn't ready at that point. I still hadn't told anyone what happened to me, although I did find out it, it had also happened to her right. on a couple of occasions when she'd been around the family home. Um, but we never we never went. I think we were so controlled as children and young adults. It took for me to be over 40 years of age to finally start speaking and, and accepting how things were. So when I was speaking with my sister, we weren't at that point. Um, we were still very much damaged young adults mm. um, so we did speak and we talked about she she was a drug user and she wanted to stop taking drugs 
and she gave me this little plan that she devised in her mind of how she was going to stop and um, it was wonderful and it might have worked if she could um, not die but so no I'm waffling a little I'm sorry that's okay don't worry about it <laughs> talk about recovery or too many deep things but we did we did heal our relationship a little yeah no and I think obviously that was it is quite an important thing to have happened considering that you know she sadly passed away um a couple of years later then um so you've you've written um a book it's called tell me you're sorry daddy and it's your memoirs um at what at what point i know you've sort of covered this but at what point did it did you decide that i am gonna write this down now <laughs> what happened well when when i went to when I reported my father in 2010, um, I had got really ill. Lots of things happened in that year, really bad things leading up to the trial. And my some of my family members weren't supporting me, basically. That's all I'll say. They was on the wrong side. And it was really, really awful. My hair was falling out and I was getting really sick. And I went away for a few days um by myself didn't take my phone or anything but somebody said to me go and ask them pick up a book sounds similar to you and i promise it'll help you and so i did i took this book and i spent the five days i was away in a in a hotel room or sitting on the balcony pretty much that that was all i did i kept reading this lady's book and um writing things down that I remembered and a lot of things came back to me through reading someone else's story and it normalised my feelings that I didn't ever dare speak out loud mm. because I felt such I was the freak but there was this other lady's story telling me that's completely normal and it was so valuable and I wrote things down and I remember one point in the five days standing up off of the balcony chair and writing in big write, big letters in this notebook, my dad's a paedophile. And I promise you, until that moment, that had never occurred to me. It was just what had happened and, and what had happened to me. But then I realised who he was and what he was. So reading the story, and that helped me so much. When I came back, I looked for an email address on the back because she'd used a pseudonym. And I wrote to the ghostwriter and said, can you please contact the lady who wrote this and tell her how it helped me and thank you. And she did. And she got back to me and said, um, I've done what you asked and, and I've sent the message to her. Um, do you want to tell me a little bit? And I told her a little bit about what was going through and that the trial was coming up. And she said, if you ever want to write a story, um, it's one that should be told. And I was like, okay, yeah, okay. I just need to get through this. So afterwards, I told her what happened and he got 16 years in prison. And she asked me again, um, would you consider telling this story? And I said, no, didn't think I could do that. Go that far as putting it on paper. But over the next two years, I kept hearing stories of people who had either taken this secret to the grave or told on their deathbed. And, and mm. that, that means, child abuse had taken every single day of their life away and that broke my heart so I decided yeah I will do it and so two years after after I said yeah I will and then eventually all the ups and downs and 
all the things that go with writing a book, it finally was um, published in 2018. Wow. What a journey. I'm sure the um, person behind that other book that you were talking about would have been really, you know, just like you receiving your messages, you know, that's made such an impact. You know, you might not have even gone and and reported to the police without that. You know, I think it's such a powerful thing sharing, you know, stories like that um so how how did you go about doing it i know you sort of touched on this so you've you managed to get some you know letters or reports of the social services together you respond into the book so i'm assuming you just put it together like a massive jigsaw piece (laughs) i went to scotland and had a few days with the ghostwriter linda watson brown she's called and we spent four days and I was t- I told her my story and she wrote everything down. And that, along with personal notes I'd kept, I'd, I'd discovered earlier in my life that one of the ways I could handle my head was to write things down when they came mm. into my head. And that helped from them swimming around all the time. If I knew they were there in black and white and I could go to them and read them, I knew it was validated and it was there and I didn't, it didn't have to swim around in my mind. So I had those and I had the files and I had my own story that I'd given to Linda and to, and with all of that, the book was put together. No, that's, that's amazing. Um, so did that process help you? Well, I didn't think, I didn't think so at the time, much like reporting abuse was the first step on me getting better and and even accepting that I had problems. And so writing my book, I wished for one person to contact me, which we already covered, absolutely smashed that one. (laughs) I wanted to give my sister a voice and that absolutely has come true. But the third thing to come out of it, which I didn't realize was how much it's helped me heal Mm. more by talking to people and um, sharing my experience. I know now that sharing your story will give at least one person their voice. Mm. And and when someone would contact me and say, can I tell you something? I knew then that that what this was doing. And and the, the, the two years running up to my book coming out, I lived with constant butterflies in my tummy. I was terrified of repercussions. I was warned about trolling on the internet and um, my family's reactions and and it was just oh my gosh just living on anxiety the whole time but every single day after it was published the, the messages that were coming through were so supportive and so full of love and I made friends on the internet that I'll probably never meet and I class them as really close friends and and I realized looking back that I was getting better every day and every day felt a little bit less scary and a little bit more okay okay it took me a year of people saying are you proud of yourself are you proud of yourself when I was saying what have I got to be proud of no I'm not proud but finally in September last year I won an echo award for courage and um, I was finally able to look back on that night a few days after it and think, yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm proud of what I've done. Um, so I think I feel different inside. 
I tolerate less and I know I'm healing as a person and that's just through sharing my story to anybody that can. No, that's amazing. Obviously, um, I was going to ask you, how did you feel winning this award? But clearly that sense of, of pride, which I mean, personally, just from going through an abusive relationship, I, I, I never... I never felt pride or being proud of myself and it's a it's a big step forwards isn't it when you suddenly go I've got this sudden feeling of being proud of myself and at first when I started to get that sense I felt guilt over feeling a bit proud and it's it's so so confusing so I'm really I want to congratulate you on on that award what an amazing achievement and thoroughly well deserved um, and your writing obviously helps. That book has obviously helped um, so many people, and I'm sure it will go on and help um, others. And um, that leads me on to ask, where can everybody get your book? Um, it's still for sale on Amazon, um, in, and it's in all of the Amazon. You, the US is only a digital download, but all of Europe... Um, you can buy it as a digital download. It's also translated now into French, Swedish, German and Dutch. So you can buy copies in them languages. But otherwise, you can buy it as a, a Kindle download or whatever you read on. Yeah, no, that's great. And um, I will put, again, all of your information um, in the description of this video. So if anybody did want to have a look, um, I'll pop it on there so everybody can sort of be a click away to it. Um, what could you just quickly tell us what your website is as well, so we all know where to go to find out more about you and you know your work and see photos of you receiving that award as well. <laughs> yeah, I have um, a, an author page on Facebook, and um, my name Corinne Walker author, but I also have a Corinne Walker um, dot Weebly dot com uh, website, and there's a little bit more on there. It's a little bit easier to navigate and have a look at like you said if, if you wanted to look at pictures and um, see what I've done and articles have been written and things yeah no that's that's great um thank you so much um Karen for joining us um today and to talk about so, something really sensitive um I hope that you're all okay and that the interview went well and everybody watching um, is feeling really, I think should be feeling positive about what a journey you've taken as well. Um, so everybody, the next live broadcast of the Abuse Talk interviews will be on April the 1st. I am aware it's April Fool's Day, but it doesn't matter. It's still going ahead. And um, if you subscribe to the channel, you'll be notified of the next one. But don't forget, you can go over to hashtag abuse talk right now. We're tweeting from 8 p.m. GMT and I'm hoping Karen might be joining us. <laughs> you never know. Um, we're actually going to be celebrating International Women's Day and with a tagathon. So it's all positive vibes, which I think we do need that sort of step you know, forward there um, after hearing you know, everything that you've had to say. Um, I don't know if I'm going to make it through the book, but I, I'm going to certainly take that time to, you know, read your story and, you know, process it and probably come back to you <laughs> about, you know, how I felt, because I do think it's important to sort of talk about what, what you we've read um, and everything as well. So 
thank you again so much for agreeing to be interviewed and for spending um, some of your time with us. It's been you know a complete pleasure especially when it's on some things you know quite vulnerable really isn't it um so thank you um and everyone thank you for watching <laughs> bye <laughs>